Morning, that was great. Uh, we're going to jump right into some heavy theological elements, so I'd like you to stand if you have received a speeding ticket in the last five years. Grant, thank you. Go ahead and stand. Some of you are like, dude, I don't know if I want to do this. I hate this church. What I like is there's a few that popped up after everyone else. All right, now, you all, no, no, seriously, stay standing. We're talking about sin. Cindy, both of you, wow, in one family. And Connor and Katie, brand new parents going to be? Jeez. All right, uh, join them if you should have received a ticket in the last five years. Like, you know, if I were caught, I would be like, yep, guilty as charged. Yeah, some of you are still reluctant. All right, look around. Look at all the sinners. You are in welcome company here. Very, very good. Okay, you guys can have a seat. Uh, Courtrooms are brutal. If you've received a speeding ticket, you just feel like a heel. Uh, for some reason, you get a speeding ticket, and the cops and the courts make you feel like you killed someone. All you did was roll a stop sign. It's not that big a deal. And yet, you feel awful about yourself. You get depressed. You get sweaty palms. You're standing before the judge. And you know what? Uh, my experience as a former police officer is the, the majority of the people who walk into court and go, man, did I blow that stop sign, judge. Please forgive me. Would you please reduce my sentence? 99.9% .9 of the time reduced or dismissed. So that's my free advice to you. Uh, you can't take me on it as uh, 100%, but I'm telling you right now, uh, just go before the court and lay yourself down at its mercy. It has nothing to do with this morning other than trying to identify who all in here are reluctant sinners, bold sinners. Katie and Connor, super appreciate that. Katie and Connor are about to birth a baby into this world. Hopefully that is a better driver than, than both of you. Um, so as a church, our mission is to equip every single person to take the next step in becoming a more fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. Every single person that walks through our door we want to equip them, not make them, not convince them, but equip you, equip them to take the next step in becoming a more fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. That's why we exist as a church. And so I want you right now to know you're welcome here. Whether you are a, a ticket gatherer or not, you are welcome here. Now, I want you to take the next step. This is less tongue-in-cheek. It's more, uh, more cheek. Uh, I want you to think of all your sin right now. Not sin in the world. Not sin in our city. Not sin in your schools. I want you to think of your sin. It's kind of a morbid process, but I want you... No one else is going to see it. There's no mind readers in here. No one... No one can see the memories flooding through your mind, but I want you to go all the way back to childhood and I want you to think about your sin. I want you to think about the things you've said. I want you to think about the things that you've done. The hurts. The cheating. The affairs. The substance abuse. I want you to think about you. 
that sin that's going to your mind, that's not your neighbor's sin. That's yours. You own that. Sometimes in church we can think pretty broad or, or we talk very broadly about sin. And I want to make it really personal today. All of our worship songs that we've kind of talked about uh, or sang talking about this sin. And I want you to wallow. I want you to sit, if you would, this morning as we look at the scriptures. I want you to sit with your sin, albeit forgiven. But I want you to sit in the truth and the fact of your gunk. Some of you may think today that our topic is detrimental to the growth. We just started out by saying our goal is to make sure that we equip every single person to take the next step in becoming a more fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. True. You might think based on the topic that we talked about this morning that that's detrimental to that growth because the topic that we're starting with this morning is this brand new series. We're going to take a break next week uh, based on what Alex said, doing the shoeboxes. But then we're going to jump into some, some r radical Old Testament study on sacrifices. We're looking at Emmanuel in our place. In other words, Jesus in your place. And we're going to dig pretty deep and, and pretty thick into the Old Testament. And for some of you, this is going to be brand new material. For others of you, it might be review. But for a lot of you, it's going to be brand new. And this morning, we want to lay a foundation. I want you to give me the permission to just lay a, a really solid foundation so that then we can build upon that as we look at each of the Old Testament sacrifices. What did they accomplish? And then ending in the very last week of this series with how did Jesus culminate that sacrifice once and for all? Uh, there's probably no Christian doctrine that is more offensive in our culture than divine judgment. In fact, if you were to uh, pull a group of uh, students or even adults and say, what are some theological problems that you have? What are some things we have to overcome? One of them in, undoubtedly would always become, how can a good God send people to hell? Maybe you've thought that to yourself. Maybe, maybe you've wrestled with that. Oftentimes, uh, if a family member or a friend passes on and, and we just don't know where they are, we struggle with this divine Christian doctrine. Timothy Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, uh, if you've never read this book, I strongly recommend it just as a good conversation piece. You won't agree with everything. Some things will rub you wrong, but it's an incredible book just to get you thinking. Timothy Keller, The Reason for God. Uh, in his book, there's two commonly held views on this subject of divine judgment. A graduate student from Germany is quoted saying, I doubt the existence of a judgmental God who requires blood to pacify his wrath. Someone had to die before the Christian God would pardon us. Why can't he just forgive? Another person responded saying this, I have an even greater problem with the doctrine of hell. The only God that is believable to me is a God of love. 
Now, maybe you have found yourself in one of those two camps. Uh, Maybe you've grown up in the church and you've never even really critically thought about divine judgment and, and, and wrath. And, and this is going to be an incredible series for you because once and for all, you're going to have some answers. You're going to have some conversation pieces for this. In the eyes of many Americans today, the judgment of God, the, the, the wrath of God, or, or some would say the anger of God, the eternal punishment of sinners in hell is unthinkable. And so it leads them to reject God, to reject the church, and to reject, therefore, Jesus. Even within the church, this topic of divine judgment often gets watered down. It often gets uh, passed over. We don't want to talk too much about it. Most pastors wouldn't like to talk about it. It's not a very good church growth strategy. It's a lot easier to just to keep doing Easter over and over. But in order to appreciate the the Christmas story, the Easter story, the Jesus with the lamb and let the little children come to me, all of that is only good if we understand this. So the subject of God's justice and wrath are among those that we seldom uh, talk about. So if we're going to understand God and and this world and why Jesus is so important, if we're going to lay some connecting bridges uh, on our lives and that which is located in the scriptures, we have to wrestle with this. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Just leave it on your lap. We've really been pushing. Bring your Bibles, bring your Bibles, bring your Bibles. Uh, If you don't own one, we'll buy you one or you can have one in the seat in front of you or you can obviously turn your phone on, but we really want to continue to push the written word in your lap. Just so we're clear, the subject of God's justice and wrath can be seen as early as Genesis. And it does not come to an end until Revelation chapter 20. We see it begin the Bible, and it does not end until Revelation 20. The whole book, the whole Bible shows us that God's justice and wrath is not only a reality, but it's a just response to the sin of mankind. It makes sense. Now, it's not going to make sense emotionally because we don't want those who we love or ourselves to be judged, but it will make sense as we go through the process of this Old Testament. The flood in Genesis 6 was in a display of divine justice and wrath. The whole sacrificial system that we are going to look at in the book of Leviticus specifically was about justice and wrath. The burning of Sodom and Gomorrah was about God. God's justice and wrath. The Israelite wars against the pagan nations and the pagan gods was about God's justice and wrath all the way through to the life, death, and resurrection was about justice and wrath. 
And this is important because the wrath of God is not like the other attributes of God. Wrath is a secondary attribute. And you say, well, what exactly does that mean? As we begin to unpack the sacrifices, each individual one, the components of them, what they accomplished, you're going to see the secondary notion of that. And so that is coming. Because wrath is a response to something that has occurred in creation. It doesn't come first. It comes in as a response. If there was no sin or rebellion against God, then there would be no reason for God to unleash his wrath uh, against humanity. But because sin entered the world, the wrath of God is being stored up, the scriptures say. The wrath of God is being stored up in heaven, and one day it will be unleashed. We don't talk about that God. We talk about the God who comes to save. We talk about the God who says, I'm going to come to raise the living and the dead and bring those to me. But make no mistake, alongside of that, in parallel to that event, is going to come God's wrath. I want you to just give me the benefit of the doubt. Stay with me, especially if things rub you wrong, because throughout this series, I, I believe with all my heart, you're going to be illuminated to why this is good news. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in preparation for this series to lay a foundation for these Old Testament sacrifices, I want to look at two, just two very quick foundational truths regarding God's wrath and justice this morning in order that we might be on the same page. So as we begin to put up walls, as we begin to put windows into the house and the roof, everything on, on this series, we have a solid foundation to which to stand upon. Number one, God's wrath is an extension of divine justice. God's wrath is an extension. It's not complete in and of itself, but it's an extension of divine justice. I don't know if you ever thought this. I remember thinking to myself as a kid, the God of the Old Testament as, a, as an old cranky man yelling at kids to get off his lawn. That's what I thought. Because every time you turn a page in the Old Testament, somebody's in trouble. Somebody's getting punished. Someone's dying. Some, something bad is happening to somebody. And it was like the Old Testament, this is me as a kid, mind you. I just thought, no one can ever live up to this cranky God. And maybe you've thought that before. The flood, the destruction of Sodom, the plagues in Egypt, and the conquest of Canaan have caused many people to assume that the God of the Old Testament had a serious anger problem. Any of you ever thought that? You're willing to admit that? Where you're like, dude, you have issues. Yeah. And then we turn to the New Testament and we see a completely different picture. It's the God of mercy. It's the God of love. It's the God of forgiveness. It's the God of gentleness and patience. And sometimes it causes us to assume that either God under, underwent a, a radical change in his... Did I, did, here we go. In, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, or some have even suggested uh, that it's two different gods. 
because it seems on the surface that they're so radically different. We're going to see it's not. It's different, but it's not radically. The misconception is born out of a faulty understanding that God rules over creation as the rightful and righteous judge over all the earth. That is the starting point. Friends, if we don't address that first, that God is the creator over all the universe, and therefore he can do whatever the heck he wants, then anything else is going to be argumentative. We have to start there. He is the judge over all the earth. In fact, the whole discussion of God's wrath is embedded in the fact that he and he alone is the creator over all of the things. Our holy God stands as judge over whose creation? His. Nothing else matters if we don't understand this. It's his creation. It's his invention. It's his people. It's his trees. It, uh, Mark did an incredible job talking about stewardship a couple weeks ago. It's his money. It's his time. It's all his. But if we don't understand that, if we don't agree on that, then we are going to have problems moving forward. And this might help you understand why maybe a loved one, uh, a family member or a friend, you just continue to butt heads because you can't agree on this fundamental issue. Who created all of this? If it's not God, then we're running into a wall. In Genesis chapter 2, it was God who issued rules for Adam and Eve on how to interact with his creation. And in Genesis 3, it was God who judged Adam and Eve and the serpent when they broke the rules given by who? Given by God. In Noah's day, it was God who judged the sinful intentions of even the, not just the actions of mankind, but the thoughts of mankind. And it was God who rendered the verdict that they were all guilty and they deserve death as judge. Rightful. Why? He made it. It's his. It's not ours. It's not humanity in general. It's his. And we could look at every stage in Israel's history and see evidence of God's rightful role in establishing law for his people and his role as a just God who renders a verdict for every person to which they deserve. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see the consistent theme of God's function as judge over all of the earth. And it is good. Amen. But it's hard. Amen. It's messy. It's complicated. It's dirty. It, it doesn't feel good. But we don't discount the first thing that it is and that it is good. Uh, turn with me to John chapter 5, if you have your Bibles there. Uh, John chapter 5, you're going to go back a, a, a little bit. John chapter 5, starting at verse 22. If you have it in your laps, you can read along. It'll also be on the screen. Here's what it says. For the Father judges no one. You're like, well, wait a second. How does that work? Keep reading. But he has given all judgment to the Son. 
that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. That's good. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is here now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's good. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority, not partial authority, he has given him authority to execute what? He has given his son Jesus the authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. In other words, those who have accepted the resurrection life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection, in other words, those who have rejected the resurrection, judgment. You say, well, that's not fair. Who created all this? You didn't create it. You can't tell someone who created something what they're doing is not fair. So God's wrath is divine justice. And we'll see that as we unpack the sacrifices. Number two, God's wrath is the justice of God toward all who do believe. God's wrath is the justice to all of those who do believe. I want you to think about it. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Just think about it. You probably immediately thought to forgive us of our sin. But why else? Was it an act of divine love? Indeed, yes. It's, it, it, it's the greatest ever displayed on earth, divine love. But that's not all. Jesus died on the cross as the greatest act of divine justice. It's like a court scene. The judge. The most incredible display of God's justice and wrath took place on a dirty hill outside the gates of the city with a whole lot of torments. And a whole lot of people acting like idiots. And then Jesus was nailed to a cross and he gave up his life to accomplish the Father's plan. Justice and wrath. The cross was a display of God's justice for all those who believe. But why? Because there had to be wrath for a verdict to be changed. Because the verdict was clear, and that was what? Guilty. There's no mistake in the Bible. Guilty. Something had to happen to change the verdict. 
And we'll see this in the coming weeks as we unpack these sacrifices. Something, someone had to pay. In some way, something had to be done. And so if you'll allow me, we're going to do something different. I know Alex had you close your eyes. If you're brand new here, uh, this is not super typical of us. Um, but sometimes it's important to remember some of the arts. And I'm going to invite you here in a moment. You're going to close your eyes for a period of time. Because I want to teach you what Romans has to say about the legal transaction that results in us being not guilty. In other words, justice. I have spent hundreds and hundreds of hours in the courtroom. I have seen the innocent. I've seen the guilty. I've seen verdicts handed out for a, a, a handful of hours or a day, and I've seen life sentences handed out. I've seen tears. I've seen cheering. Uh, I've seen people pass out on the witness stand. I have felt the turmoil. I, I, I can, at, at, at this moment, I, I can remember and feel the tension in a courtroom, the murmur of the crowd. And so my mind, sometimes when I read scripture, especially when it comes to this topic, I just think like a courtroom. And it helps me understand scripture a little bit. And so if I may, I want to ask you right now to close your eyes. And I want you to picture a courtroom as I explain Romans. Picture yourself in a courtroom. Fight off the temptation to think about football or lunch. Think about this courtroom. In Romans chapter 1, you're called to step out into the courtroom of God where God the Father sits as judge. And the charges against you are read aloud. Everyone hears. The charge against you is rebellion. You're charged with being a traitor who has turned against the God of the land. And though you knew him as God, you did not worship him accordingly. You suppressed the truth and you worshiped and served the creatures rather than the creator. You worship money. You worship success, family, leisure. You worship status, pleasure, power, and freedom, and you deny the truth about God. Your charge is that you are a sinner and you deserve a sinner's wage. Then your accuser stands to present the evidence against you and to make his case before the judge. This accuser is well-dressed. 
He's alluring, strong, well-spoken, and very convincing. And as Satan begins to point out all of your sin over the years, he points out all the times that you lied, the times that you were angry and broke out in a rage at your friends and family. He points out all the times that you gossiped about those who you should have loved and the times that you coveted their beauty and talents and possessions. Satan's prosecution team will go on to talk about the times that you cheated others, the times you failed to care for the poor and the less fortunate, and instead you were selfish. Satan would dredge up all the lust that ruled your private thoughts and the times you sought satisfaction in the pleasures of this world. He would point out the times you shook your fist at the heavens, blasphemed, shouting the name of God. He would point out all the times that you boasted in your own morality, your concern for the world, and you became prideful over your own self-righteousness. He would point out all the times you knowingly hurt and attacked those who you loved and how you broke every one of God's laws. Quickly, before you even know it, the focus then turns to you. And you have no choice but to plead guilty to all of your charges. The law has not in any way wavered in its honesty, and the accuser has presented his case with skill. And under the weight of the charges and in the sight of the judge, you have no place to stand. You are guilty. Guilty as charged, and to deny this in front of the judge would only bring more charges to your account. And so with sadness and fear, trembling and shame, you enter your plea of guilty. The accuser smiles. And then with intensity calls for the full penalty of the law and demands the judge order a sentence of death and judgment for your crimes. For he knows what the scriptures say. He knows that the wages of a sin is death and calls for it. But before the gavel falls, the doors open and a brand new witness enters. The room trembles. What's happening? He walks in, raises his hand, and takes an oath. It is none other than Jesus himself. People refer to him as faithful and true and righteous as he comes to judge. Reporters would later go on to describe his appearance. They would write, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe and it's weird because it looks like it's dipped in blood. And he's called the name, the word of God. What's even more alarming is an entire army follows behind him in pure white robes. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He comes forward 
and declares that his death paid the price for your sin. The accuser yells, what evidence do you have? Jesus tells the courtroom that upon the cross that he shed his blood as a ransom price for the accused and he declares that your debt has been previously paid in full. Jesus presents his evidence. He points out that his own very blood satisfies the eternal debt against you. In fact, he turns slowly. He faces the judge, which happens to be his father, and he begins to show the scars in his hands to the judge and to the courtroom. He points out the healed scars on his forehead from the crown of thorns. He lifts his shirt and shows a healed wound on his side. And then he removes his shirt in the middle of the courtroom, turns, and shows the court his healed, butchered body from being whipped to the point of death. And with tears in his eyes, he calmly states as evidence that your sin was nailed to the cross and that you bear it no more. There's a hush in the courtroom. Until the angry accuser opens his mouth again, he begins to shout, pound his fist, spew lies, twist truth, and makes threats against you and your family. Jesus sits quietly on the witness stand. And as you catch eyes with one another, he gives you a slow but very profound nod. Soldiers in his army approach you. They hand you a brand new robe. And Jesus quotes the words in Isaiah chapter 61, the prophet, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And now Satan cowering and planning, Christ standing for your defense and the Holy Spirit standing by your side as your ever-present advocate, God the Father, the judge, slowly stands to give his verdict. His voice is unlike anything you've ever heard. And this voice, it does not say guilty, nor does it say not guilty. This judge, his words will ring for eternity from the homes of suburbia to the bushes of Africa, throughout the prisons and the hospitals, to the office cubicles, to the streets of Juarez, throughout the halls of the high schools and middle schools, and on every inch of the majestic trails of the mountain, the same word is echoed for miles. Justified. You bow your head in relief. And you remember these powerful words there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you weep. 
friends, this is the picture that Paul paints. He uses different words. But this is the picture that Paul paints for us in the book of Romans. God's justice towards those who believe. This is the drama of our salvation and how it plays out in God's word. God's justice has been satisfied by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we stand with him by faith to receive the gifts of God's grace and the absolute assurance that we're in good standing. That there's no such thing as double jeopardy. We can't be tried again. The charges can't be levied against us. There's no more court of law. It's done. There is not one single sin ever committed that will ever go unpunished. Not one. Not yours. Not mine. Not the world around us. And either you will endure the wrath of God, which you deserve in hell for all of eternity. Or you will take shelter in Jesus Christ, who endured the wrath of God on your behalf on the cross. There is not another option. And trust me, I would love for there to be one. There are some of you in this room, and if you're watching us online, you've never made that decision to take shelter in the arms of Jesus to ensure that you will spend eternity with him forever. You've never uh, embraced the court scene the way you just heard it. There's a, a saying in, in the legal world, uh, the person who defends himself who's on trial for murder gets what? <laughs> Death. You can't defend yourself. You need someone to present evidence. You need someone to defend you. And for a lot of us, we just go through this world and we defend ourselves. We justify ourselves. We, we try and make things right. And the Christ who one day will judge the world is the same Christ who died to save you from that judgment. But he's the only way to be saved from that judgment. This is the Old Testament sacrificial system. And we're going to see that played out in, in extreme detail in the coming weeks. I want to invite you um, as we wrestle with wrath and justice and we, we come to this table. I want to invite you to approach this table in a different way today. Uh, you know, sometimes we can just approach it as forgiveness. It's great. Sometimes we can uh, approach it in love and, and that's great. We think about uh, we've got a seat at the table, which is great. All of that is true of the Lord's table as we partake in the sacrament. But this morning, I want you to 
try your hardest to approach the table with the idea wrath and justice. Because even when a judge throws out your traffic ticket and says, no points, no fine, Merry Christmas, have a good day, that's justice. And just when the judge gives a verdict of guilty and gives a very harsh punishment of wrath for a behavior, that's justice. So I'm going to invite you to approach this table with those two things in mind. Sin and justice, wrath and justice. And then begin to prepare. You could do this by looking up the Old Testament sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. Prepare in two weeks as we jump in this with the very first one, the Olah. And we're going to unpack that. It's gruesome. It's terrible. But it's so good. But before we do communion, I, I want to give an opportunity. And I've never done this on video, so figure, just go with it if you're watching this on video. But if you're watching this on video or if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus and what he's done for you and that eternal life and that hope so that your verdict is no longer guilty, I want to give you that opportunity. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in this room. If you're watching online, you certainly don't need to bow your head. But if you're watching, there might be a tendency to feel disconnected. You might be in your, your office. You might, be, um, you might be at home in the family room. You might be in the library. Today's October 13th, so I don't know when you might be watching this. But I know that our God is beyond time and that he's nudging and sitting right with you as you watch this. And he's sitting with you as you have an opportunity to make the most important decision of your life. And same goes for all of you in this room. Maybe you've acted the part, but you know in your, the depths of your heart, you've never accepted Jesus. You've never decided, this is it. I'm jumping. I'm, I'm accepting him for, for all the payment for my sin. I'm accepting forgiveness. I'm, I'm accepting hope. And I've done it all on my own, and I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to... I am truly going to go sit by Jesus in the courtroom, and I'm not going to talk. I'm going to let him talk for me. And so if you're here in this room or you're watching a line, I want to give you the opportunity to make that decision. And it's just a simple prayer. And so you can pray this with me. You don't have to say it out loud if you're new to church or if you're at home, you don't even have to say it out loud at home. Uh, you can just think it in your mind, say it in your heart, these powerful words. God, please forgive me. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for, for my actions that in part put those scars on your back and on your forehead and, and on your hands. Please forgive me. Please stand up for me. 
in front of the judge in the courtroom and the accuser. Allow my verdict to be justified. I don't want to be guilty. I don't want the eternity in hell. I want eternity with you. And, and yeah, I may have a lot of questions, but I, I want that. And I choose that right here, right now. If you prayed that prayer, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, then you are saved. And if you prayed that prayer here in this room, if you prayed that prayer watching online, you are saved by the actions of Jesus. And your verdict is justified. Now we might have a, a long road to go in understanding and figuring out what that looks like, but today, you're justified. So if you prayed that prayer, I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand up and slip it right back down. Thank you. Awesome. Sweet. Thank you. You don't have to leave it up. Just a quick up and down. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Very cool. Very cool. This, this is what church is. So my prayer for all of you, but especially those of you who prayed that prayer, that as you approach this table, it's a different experience this morning. Just a little different. Let's pray together and let Alex and the team lead us. God, we, we sure don't like judgment. <laughs> we don't like wrath. have a hard time with it sometimes and I'm, I'm really grateful that you have patience with us in those struggles I'm, I'm grateful that you're okay with us having a hard time but as we get ready to to look at years and years and years of a practice that put people in right standing with you Today, we rejoice that Jesus has done that. Again and again and again. And so, God, I asked these friends and family to hold their sins in their lap all morning. And I pray now that they would bring those sins and leave them at the table to take the cup and to take the bread and do this in remembrance of you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.